As we come to the book of Acts, we are rolling into this portion of the story uh, that is the continuation of what happens in the beginning of chapter 3. If you recall, uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, we find that Peter and John, uh, who are there, they are men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are going up to the temple. They are making their way to the temple. Now, the reason that they're uh, on the way to the temple, the reason that they are, in fact, finding their way to this place is uh, specifically because they are seeking to make Jesus known. If you recall, they've walked with Jesus for three years. It was Jesus who called them to be his disciples, to follow him, to walk with them through life. And Peter and John were faithful to do this thing. They were faithful to follow Jesus. And there were many bumps along the way. And they uh, even got themselves into a bit of trouble. Uh, We find uh, in the middle of the book of Mark, it's... uh, It's Peter who thinks he's got life figured out, and he uh, even kind of steps out there in a moment of boldness, and he makes this grand declaration about who Jesus is. He says that, Jesus, you are the Lord and the Christ. You are the one that we have long awaited, that we are expecting. And and Jesus does. He he affirms what Peter says. He says, "Uh, Peter, you are blessed because this isn't something that's come to you by by human wisdom. This isn't something that has come to you on your own, but this has come to you as the result of uh, divine revelation. Heaven has revealed this to you. But then there, in that same, uh, same moment, Peter being so excited, perhaps, about uh, this, um, this recognition that he got from Jesus, and uh, he's like on fire, because he's like, yeah, heaven's speaking directly to me. Then there, Jesus is revealing his plan that the Messiah has to suffer and die, and he has to uh, be killed. But then Peter steps out there, and he's like, oh, no, Lord, I'm never going to let that happen. And in the very same breath, Jesus has to be like, Peter, you're basically like Satan. You're trying to prevent what my mission is. But that same Peter who was, who was zealous for that moment, he was excited about this revelation that God had given him. He finds himself uh, on the receiving end of a rebuke from Jesus. And then as he uh, grows, uh, the only time he, he comes to a place where he... he, he Uh, eventually comes into a very low position where he ends up denying Jesus, not only three times, not just simply uh, saying that, oh, I I really don't know Jesus. I've never uh, heard of him. Sometimes uh, you'll often hear that he used kind of these uh, swear words around to, to say that he doesn't know Jesus. But what he actually does there in his denial is he is taking an, an oath. He's, he's saying, uh, you know, I, am swearing on the name of the Lord that he doesn't know Jesus. And so he goes from like these high highs to these low lows. But it's only when, when we come to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills uh, the disciples, fills the church, that we find Peter in the position to now stand up with boldness and faithfully proclaim the word of God. It's only in that moment that he begins to see the entirety of what God has called him to do He's obedient to obey what Jesus has told them to do in the Great Commission. And even there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus commissions them and says that they are going to be his witnesses. His witnesses. And so we have to think, what does it mean for Peter and the boys to be witnesses? 
Well, they are to go and to tell the story, the gospel message of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so here, on their way up in chapter 3 to the temple, they are going there to do just that, to bear witness. Now, on the way, we, felt, we saw last week that they run into this uh, man who has been, who has been uh, lame since birth. He is someone who has experienced uh, great difficulty in his life. And we said last week that probably the reason that this man has been lame since birth, the reason that he is in this position, is likely because he's trying to, to justify his existence. Now, the reason that we said that is because someone who is in a position like this, they don't really want to be a burden to others. But this man was there to show that he could earn his own, he, he could pay his own way, he could, he could, um, he could earn his own keep. And so he had people coming and helping him. But what he really needed to see was Jesus. And so the disciples come, they set this man's gaze upon Jesus. And then as they come into uh, this exchange with him, they begin offering him not money, which the man asks for, but they go deeper and they offer him healing. Now, the way that they offer him healing is not just to say that this man needed healing, but in offering this man healing, what they're also offering him is the beauty of Jesus. Because it's seen that Jesus' life and ministry in the book of Acts is associated with these signs and wonders. And those things accredited Jesus' life and ministry uh, as being one who was sent from the Father. And so the disciples now say, we are going to give you this same healing that was associated with Jesus' ministry, saying that we have that same power, that same authority given to us so that you might receive not just healing, but you might see that Jesus is Lord. This is what they're getting at. And so the man does this, he responds, and now we come to verse 11. Stick with me here. And we see that this man is clinging to them. He doesn't just leave. He doesn't just, it isn't just someone who is healed and he goes away off on his own to have his own life, his own experiences, to, to deal with things in the way that he uh, would really like to, to participate in and say, oh, I'm, I'm free, all the things that I've always wanted to do as uh, someone who has been broken, I'm going to go do those things now. I'm going to go and, and uh, go for a run, and I'm going to go and, and go to all the parties and visit and go and travel. No, he sticks with the disciples. Now we come to the section, and we find that as he makes his way with them into the temple where the disciples were going, they stay on their mission, they come to this place called Solomon's Portico. This place is a covered area that ran the entire length of the temple. It's kind of like this outer border. Um, and this was um, a spot where Jesus often taught. Actually, we have a picture thrown up there. Give you a little insight. Boom, there we go. So you have like this out, outer border. That's kind of this, the section. There were different portions called um, the Solomon's Portico. Sometimes it was often referred to this like more roofed-in section that looks more fancy. Um, there were different gates, but the section that is likely we're talking about is this eastern portion here. doesn't really matter too much to our story. But this is the place where Jesus frequently taught. Uh, he went here to converse with the people. And so when they saw Jesus' disciples, this would spark a memory in the minds of the Jewish people to think, this is where Jesus often came and taught. I wonder what his disciples are up to. I wonder what they're doing here. They were known in this area. Now, 
as we go through the book of Acts, you'll see that the Christians in Jerusalem frequently met in this position. But as they go here, this man is holding on to Peter and John. He clings to them. He's connected himself to them uh, with purpose. He's connected himself to them because these men have brought huge change and transformation into his life. Now, it wasn't their own power and authority, which we'll get to. We'll see. But they seek to, and this man sees, he understands that Jesus is the one who's healed him. But the way that it works, the way that this works is when people meet Jesus, they need something to cling on to. The, the scriptures speak of this in the, in the means of discipleship. And this is something that we talked about at community group on Friday. This is something that we, we talked about. Uh, when people come into a relationship with Jesus, you're not just a part of the club and you're on your own and you're just going to wander around. You need to be connected to somebody. You need to be in a relationship where you become a disciple of Jesus. Now, in our church, something that we're working towards is we're working towards the members of the church being able to disciple, to have a relationship with one to three people. This is the mode that we're in. We're trying to get people to that spot so that way we can nurture future believers, people who are going to come to faith. As it stands right now, this is something we kind of talked about on Friday. The way that you kind of know where you're at is if I told you today, I'm going to hook you up with three people that you're going to need to disciple. If that strikes fear in your heart, you need to find somebody to be in a discipleship relationship with. You, you need to get to the place where you are able to do that, where you're able to take someone on and to help them see and know and understand Jesus. And so you have to ask that question, as you are a Christian, who are you holding on to? You need to find someone to cling to. There's no uh, Lone Ranger Christians. There's no solitary Christians. You need to find somebody to be in relationship with, a community. This is why we have uh, our community groups. You have opportunity to find people to connect to. Now, these people, Peter and John, they make their way, This and the lame man, they make their way into Solomon's portico. And we find that all the people there are utterly astonished. They see what's happening and they run to them. Their question to this man is, what has happened to you? You see, they've seen that there has been a work that's happened in this man's life. And now they want, they're, they're blown away. They want to know what's happened and why are you with these disciples? Why are you with Jesus' old posse? And so this man all of a sudden has a story. This man has a story. And this is his biggest tool to help people meet Jesus, okay? I want you to understand this. This man is not like this solid theological ninja where people are going to come at him and be like, well, prove to me that Jesus is God. And, he, and he's going to be able to like come at it, come at these people with these logical conversations and he's going to persuade them with his quick wit and his deep knowledge of the scriptures. This isn't the case. This man has basically been an outcast in the eyes of the people. He's on his own. He's been touched by Jesus, healed, changed, and transformed. And now the people are coming to him to ask him what has happened. Friends, I need you to understand that this is your most powerful weapon as a believer. It's not that you're well-versed in the scriptures. It's not that you're strong and you're quick-witted. Maybe you're an introvert. The thing that is most helpful in helping people meet Jesus is your story of a transformed life. 
It's your story. People can come up with responses to you about any sort of fact that you might want to bring, or they might come with their own perspective, but you cannot argue with a changed and transformed life. You just can't come against that. There's nothing that is a counter-argument to someone who was dead and is made alive. There's no counter-argument to someone who is broken but is made whole. There's no counter-argument to someone who has been lost but now has been found. Your story is the most important thing that you have. And the most important thing that you can do with that story is share it with the people in your lives. How did you come to be involved with the church? Why are you with that church? Why are you with these people? People want answers. They, they're there. But especially in our culture, it just, it's just weird to like ask about that. So you can get out there and you can say, oh, you know, like I've been going to that church for a while and I've, or I've been... I've been uh, a Christian. I wasn't always a Christian. Let me tell you my story about like how that happened. People are curious. They will listen, but they're not necessarily going to ask. Some people will, but you have a tool that you can use. And when people hear about how Jesus has changed your life, man, Jesus just looks so beautiful and wonderful. And you just put him on display. Use that tool that God has given you, that testimony. And so these men who come, they want to know, how did you get connected with these guys? Now, Peter, he gets this. He sees what's happening. And if you look in verse 12, here's what he says. When, when Peter saw this, he, he addressed the people. He addressed them. He, he sees what's happening. He, he's getting this understanding that people are coming and they're thinking like, okay, they're seeing that maybe me and John, we have like this power. And so he comes up with what he ought to do, to witness, to testify to who Jesus is. And so here's what he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter knew that it was time to redirect the attention of the crowd to Jesus. He knew that if people are coming and starting to look at him, his main goal, his main uh, point that he wanted to accomplish was to set their gaze upon Jesus. This is exactly what he did with this lame man. The lame man looked to him and to John, and he said, no, 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 you need to look to Jesus. It is Jesus who will heal you. And here, Peter seeks to do this same thing. Now, you need to cling to somebody when you become a Christian. You need to be a disciple and to make disciples but we need to remember this. We're not making disciples of each other. We're not making clones of each other. We're making disciples of Jesus. So the things that we're doing, we are pointing to Jesus. We're not pointing to our own personal preferences. We're not pointing to the way that we really like things. We're not trying to get people to make decisions the way that we make decisions and based upon our own personality, our own disposition. We're trying to get people to look to Jesus in all things. So if your disciple is becoming more like you, that's the wrong way. We don't want those disciples. We want people to be disciples of Jesus. So that is the goal. And so Peter and John, they realize they've got to point this man, this, this group of people to Jesus. Now in verse 13, here's what Peter goes on. He, he, he starts off and he says, why do you guys stare at us? Why do you wonder at this man's healing? And in 13, he goes, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified 
his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So Peter, he begins to trace out for this group of people the, the risen Jesus as Lord and Christ, right? Those things, those words don't mean as much to us today, but he is saying that Jesus is both the long-awaited promised Messiah and he's God, both of those things. He's wanting them to see this, to understand this. Now, he does this in just like the most brilliant way, because this is how the Holy Spirit works. Peter just is all of a sudden this blue-collar fisherman, and he just, that's like his jam, and he's all super temperamental all over the place. But then when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, the Lord just gives him like this perfect, like, all right, here's this logical way to lay out how awesome Jesus is. Here's what he does. He starts with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is the phrasing that he uses. Now, this is unique, and this is important why he does this, because he takes this directly from Exodus chapter 3 in God's revelation to Moses. He's, he's talking, to Mo, talking to that point in where Moses says, here's who I am, Moses. I'm revealing myself to you. And so he starts, Peter starts with the same way, this same God, this same God who, who sent Moses, who you serve, he's reminding the people of this unique phrase. He's anchoring it because what he wants to do is he wants to remind them of their history, of the story of Moses. Moses is also the, their greatest prophet. So he wants them to remind them of the history, their history in Exodus, that they were a people who were in bondage. They were enslaved. They couldn't rescue themselves. They couldn't save themselves. And that they were redeemed by God sending a deliverer to rescue them on their behalf, to act as a mediator between them and God out in the wilderness in the establishing of a covenant. So he's just put all of that into their minds through using this phrase. And what he's beginning to do is he wants to anchor his, his argument in the Mosaic promises so that when he eventually gets to Jesus, when he eventually looks to Jesus towards the end, he shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promised servant that Moses speaks of. So he begins here. He says, the same God that you serve, this God of your history, he sent his servant Jesus. He glorified his servant Jesus, he says. And then he comes in on like just weaving this, this uh, perfect, perfectly directed attack at their understanding and actions. Here's what he says. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So first, Israel rejected Jesus and then they denied him before Pilate. So they bring him to Pilate. Pilate, he wants to release Jesus because he couldn't find any fault in him. But when Pilate had decided to do that, then the chief priests, the rulers, the people, they get involved in a much deeper way. Look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So he's like, you guys are the ones who trumped up these charges. You brought them to Pilate. Pilate's like, well, I don't know what the problem is. Why do you guys have them? And then Pilate finds a way to give him back to you, and then you guys figure out a way to deny him again. You denied the holy and righteous one, 
and you ask for a murderer to be granted to you instead. So Peter's bringing these, uh, just this conviction upon them of what they have done, that they've already denied him, that they already have not recognized him as Lord and King. But now Peter goes in deeper. Not only did they reject and deny Jesus, but now he says in verse 15, this is like the most hardcore thing ever, and you killed the author of life. How gnarly is that? And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Wow. You denied him, you denied him, you rejected him, you denied him, and you killed the author of life. Jesus is the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the author of life. And it's, it's also kind of ironic because it's like, can you kill the author of life? Obviously, he doesn't stay dead. But it's through Jesus' death and his resurrection that Jesus becomes the author of life for all sinners. If Jesus was not killed, then there would not be life for all who are separated from him. But God raises him from the dead, and he says, to this, we are witnesses. Jesus is alive. He's making sinners alive even today. He's restoring life to the broken. He's leading the church. And what Peter is saying is that we have just seen that Jesus is alive, and he's making things alive even today, even in the story of this broken man. The fact that this man has been made whole shows that Jesus' life-giving power is enacted. It is illustrated in this man's restoration. And so he's bringing this, these arguments. He's like, we're going to testify about this Jesus. Now he goes on in 16, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter stresses that Jesus is the one who has brought this man healing. It's not them. The man was not healed through the power of Peter and John. He was not healed because of their strong moral character, that they were good people, and so they were able to accomplish this. Now, the lame man, he wasn't even healed because his faith was strong. The lame man's faith isn't even like, brought into the equation until Peter and John say, oh, you're, you're healed. No, no, no. He was healed because the object of his faith was strong. It is Jesus who is strong, and Jesus is able to heal. He is able to put his power on display so that this group of people specifically might see that he is Lord and Christ. You see, the healing is not an end in its own. It's nice, 
It's, it's great for this man. But the main thing that we should take away is not just that Jesus brings this physical healing to this broken man, but that Jesus is Lord. And we find that established through the demonstration of this healing. And he goes again and again to anchor it in Jesus' name. Right? That's how he starts 16. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter is all about the name of Jesus. By his name, by this name, by this man, by Jesus. Right? And the reason that he keeps hammering on the name of Jesus is because earlier he has told them in Acts chapter 2, in his first sermon, that salvation is available for all who call upon the name of the Lord. And so what he's saying here is, I'm getting back to the name, the name, the name, because Jesus is Lord. This is what he's getting to. And so he comes now to, to begin to make this, this offer to the, to the multitude. Verse 17, stick with me. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So he says, fellow Israelites, I know that you didn't realize, even though Jesus put on a completely clear display of who he was, even though he spoke plainly, he demonstrated in signs and wonders who he was, I know you guys didn't get it. I know you didn't get it. Now, He's not excusing them because earlier he's already just told them like straight up, like you killed the author of life. So he's basically saying you're guilty. But what he's simultaneously beginning to do is to help them understand that even though you killed the author of life, God's love for you, his grace for you is so great that even salvation is available to you. Even though you participated in this, you're not out of luck. That offer is for you. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He says, you guys didn't know? God said that the Messiah had to suffer. You didn't pay attention. The suffering servant was God's idea. He sent Jesus to fulfill that role so that the world would be redeemed through him. And then... We find the turn in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. That's the first thing. Peter calls them to repent, to turn back. To turn back. Peter is calling them to repent on what he is declaring about Jesus. Earlier, they believed that Jesus was not God, and even to the point, to the level of going uh, so far as to kill him. But now, Peter says, it's time to repent, to change your mind about Jesus. There is a call to repentance for all who hear about Jesus. This involves reorienting your life around Jesus. It involves obeying Christ in all things. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we ought to bend our knee to him in submission and obey him in all that he calls us to do. And Peter here, for these men, he lists three things that are the results of this call to repentance. First, 
that your sins may be blotted out. Repent so that your sins may be blotted out. He wants them to understand. He wants us to understand that when you repent, when you accept that it is Christ who has paid for your sins, that those sins are blotted out. They are gone. They, God doesn't hold them against you. That you have acceptance in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done for you. Right? Our kids down in uh, Sanctuary Kids, they talk about it this way. God is happy with you because of Jesus. God is never happy with you because of you. It's because of Jesus every single time. So when you are in a season where you're feeling like you're not good enough, you can say, yeah, that's true. I'm not good enough, but Jesus is good enough. And God is happy with me because of Jesus. It doesn't ever matter how you're feeling. It only matters about what Jesus has done. And do you trust in Christ for salvation? This is the message of the gospel. God has done something wonderful for you, something that you could not do. He has done it through the work of his own son. And he is happy, just ecstatic about who you are when you trust in Christ for salvation. Because he sees Jesus. The second thing that Peter lists as a result of the call of repentance is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, we could go off for like a long time in different ways that God brings us times of refreshing, because he certainly does in many ways. But I think one of the ways that Peter's talking about most specifically here is the work, the person and work of the Holy Spirit coming to uh, indwell the believer. We've just seen this in Acts chapter 2. And so I, I think that what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit, the one who's bringing refreshing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks this way. He says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And he goes on in verse 22, and has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, what Paul's talking about there in 2 Corinthians 1 is he's saying that when you trust in Christ for salvation, you are given the Holy Spirit. God indwells the believer. And the Holy Spirit acts as a seal and as a guarantee. Isn't it refreshing to know that? That you don't have to wonder, like, am I, am I a Christian? Am I not? But that God gives him, gives you his own spirit to indwell you, to act as that seal, as that guarantee, so you can just relax. You can just know that I belong to him. It's the life-giving Holy Spirit who refreshes us. Now, the third thing that Peter notes is he says that we should repent so that he might send Christ, the Christ appointed for you, even Jesus what he's saying here is Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one chosen by God for you. Even if you've rejected him, he has, been, he has chosen him. But what he says is, this Messiah whom you have rejected will return only when you repent. God is desiring that, that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. He goes on in verse 21, he says, but before he returns, there's some things that 
this Jesus is doing. There's a timing for his return. Verse 21, he says, Whom heaven must receive until the time of, uh, for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So Jesus is going to return, but he's going to only return when it's time to bring about the restoration of all things. But Jesus' kingdom is already breaking in. It's already breaking in. It began, it began through at, at the cross. He's just beginning to tear apart the brokenness of the world and making all things new. And another aspect of it is the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2 and the restoration of Israel beginning there and the gathering of all these nations and the preaching of the gospel and the pouring out of God's Spirit as was prophesied in Joel chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, we see the, the kingdom breaking in again, illustrating God's restoration in the life of this broken man who has been lame since birth and Jesus healing him. There's these little clues that are being laid out before us, these breadcrumbs, so that way we can see that he will come and restore all things, make all things right. And so now Peter begins to give a warning in verse 22 of the failure to repent and receive Christ as Lord. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So Peter comes in, he cites Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verses 15 and 19, and then Leviticus chapter 23, verse 29. What he says here is that Moses, who was the ultimate prophet in your history, even Moses understood that one greater than him would come. Even someone greater than him would come. He says, you guys haven't seen anybody come, right? Who's, who you think have, has been greater? And, and Peter says, I suggest to you that Jesus is this one who has come. Jesus is the one who is greater than Moses. Jesus is the true deliverer. He is the true redeemer. Jesus is the true mediator between God and man. He is the one who has fulfilled this. He says, the result of not listening, of not understanding this, if you do not listen to this prophet, you'll be destroyed from the people. So he appeals to this authority that Moses has. He says he's greater than, than, than Moses and that Moses spoke of him. Then he appeals to Samuel in verse 24. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. He's like... Guys, everybody else knew about this. All the prophets, they were all speaking on the Lord's behalf. Here's what they said. And he says, even Samuel, he takes part in this. He takes part in paving the way for Jesus. Now, how does, how does Samuel get involved? How does Samuel play a part? Well, Samuel was the one who anointed David, the king of Israel. It was Samuel who spoke of the establishment of this kingdom. And what he's doing through this is declaring God's design to continue to send a Messiah, a promised king, a promised prophet, and a priest through David's line. He would accomplish this, and Samuel was the one who kind of set some of these things into motion. Now he finishes in 25. Stick with me here at the end. And you are the sons of the prophets 
and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he says a couple things. First, your sons of the prophets. He's like, you guys are the ones who get to benefit. You're on the other side of the cross. You're on the other side of that history. You are the ones who get to benefit now from all the things that the prophets promised. You get to reap all of those rewards. Everything that they said about the Messiah and the Psalms, the prophets, the law, all of it is yours. So grasp it. He goes on and he says, not only that, but also the covenant that God made with your fathers. So what he's saying is appealing to that Abrahamic promise, that Abrahamic covenant that he started it off with, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers. And then he speaks of this promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, what Peter's saying is that it's through Jesus that this promise is fulfilled. Everybody on the earth, all the families on the earth, have the opportunity of blessing, of coming into a relationship with the covenant-keeping God because of Jesus, the true and faithful Israelite, the true deliverer, the true redeemer, the true mediator. It is through his work that there is new life available not only for Israel, but for the nations. Peter gets at this in as much where he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. He's saying, this is for Israel first. You're getting first crack at it. But he leaves that little door open to be like, but there are more people coming. He's get, helping them understand Remember what you missed in the scriptures about the promise of this Messiah, the prophet that came and you didn't recognize it was Jesus? There's probably some other things you don't recognize in here too, that the nations will come into a relationship with Christ. It's not just going to be you, Israel, but that the gospel is for all people. They've received this wonderful gospel so that they might be blessed and that they might turn away from their wickedness. It's Jesus who is the fulfillment of this promise. God sends him to fulfill this plan. And it's their opportunity to now respond, to repent. When you hear the message of the gospel, it's never just a, oh, that was a cool story, thanks. You always have a decision to make about whether you're going to continue in allegiance to the king, whether you're going to bow your knee for the first time, or whether you're going to fall in with that earlier group of people who denied, 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 rejected, chose a murderer instead. An opportunity to respond. So we'll do that this morning uh, as we respond and worship together. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us and that you have given us your wonderful son. We're so thankful that you have given us new life through our Savior. And Lord, we want to respond together in thanksgiving this morning, in worship. 
or would the power of the gospel, the message of you making the dead alive, of you using our lives that are broken and making us transformed into new people, or would you take those things and bring those things to the forefront of our minds, of of our own stories, so that we can respond out of those things, saying, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for changing my life. Lord, you are worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor. We want to respond to you together this morning. Work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to apply uh, just this text, all that Peter spoke to, all that you've called us to do. We pray that you would highlight for us, Lord, those areas that we need to submit to you, that we need to surrender to you, Areas where we're half-hearted, Lord, reveal those to us so we can become people who are wholeheartedly chasing after you, knowing you, wanting to enter into a deeper relationship with you. Help us, Lord, as we seek to be your disciples. We want more of you, Lord. And as we come to our time together, help us to set our, our, our gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, upon your wonderful name. Be glorified in your church, Jesus. We love you. Amen.